Okay, perfect. So we've just gone live. This is Connor Heffernan speaking from the Wild West, which is the United States of America right now. I am very delighted to welcome on to the, the podcast today, Will Whitmore, who's doing some really fascinating work on sport chaplaincy and sport history. So I'm going to open with a very simple question of just asking you to introduce yourself and your research uh, topic. Well, thanks for having me on today, Connor. So yeah, uh, as Connor said, my name is Will, and I currently am a PhD student at the University of Gloucestershire, and my research area is uh, sports chaplaincy in elite sports settings. So this would be sports chaplains who serve primarily professional teams, but also high-level amateur teams. So in the United States of America, this would be Division I uh, University Athletics. Uh, but you could also uh, put in there Olympic amateur chaplaincy or other high-level um, chaplaincy like the Commonwealth Games, things such as that. I am a part-time PhD student, um, and I also uh, work at a boarding school, so in the UK, what would be called a public school, where I serve as the school's chaplain, essentially the school's minister, and uh, I also teach in the religion and history department there. So this is something that's very much like an all-encompassing aspect, I think, of you and what what you study and um, I suppose yeah no go ahead yeah I have it's a very simple line you know sport and religion it's kind of a one-track thing for me so that definitely works there and I suppose digging into the actual meat and bones of your PhD if you could maybe go into like what countries are studying what sports are studying and how it's played out for you uh, thus far yeah so I'm in the latter stages of my uh, dissertation my advisors sent me back my final revisions before I submit for my Viva earlier in the month. Um, so yeah, that's both exciting and terrifying at the same time. Um, but so the, the study is a small scale qualitative study of chaplains in the English Premier League and the National Football League. And so what we did was, is um, I looked at, uh, I did interviews with four chaplains in each league, eight chaplains total. And these uh, interviews really looked at the work and life and the kind of the background of these chaplains. So we wanted to understand um, what the chaplain's roles entailed, how they saw, understood their work, uh, both from a theological perspective, but also in kind of a very practical sense. We looked into what the chaplains have done educationally, um, how they were trained for a position like this, how they got a position like this, uh, but then also how they understand their work theologically uh, in the grander sense of things. And really, uh, it was a it's a comparative study. So we wanted to look at uh, not only how chaplains compared to others in their league, but uh, looking at cross-culturally how chaplains uh, work. Because if I told you that I'm a sports chaplain in the English Premier League, and you said, oh, I've heard of a sports chaplain in the NFL, you would assume that I did the exact same, these are one and the same job. Um, but really, there are some major differences and deviations in them. Um, both in approach and style and how they work within their clubs. So we really wanted to bury into that. Um, sports chaplaincy is very much an emerging field of academic research. Uh, there's been some small-scale qualitative studies in the United States and the UK, uh, but really there is more work to be done here than not. So this was, the, to my knowledge, is the first cross-cultural study of sports chaplaincy, and it'll be the first dissertation that looks at NFL or uh, NFL and English Premier League chaplains. So we're really uh, looking at stuff that's been talked about in various ways, but putting a qualitative framework around it and getting 
data from these chaplains and analyzing it from there is something that uh, it's really exciting and you know new. So that's been a really cool part of the research. Yeah, I think something that kind of confused me in a really interesting way when you sent over your CV and some of your writing is in in the US. I feel that sports chaplaincy is quite a public role of sorts. It seems to be more high profile. But when you mentioned chaplains in the Premiership or in the Premier League, like that's something that I as a Leeds fan, admittedly, I maybe haven't looked at the Premier League too closely in the last 16 years, but it's not something that seems to be as high profile a role or as talked about a role in, the, in England than it is in the United States, where it seems to be a little bit more kind of out in the public. Yeah, and I think that's a really, um, that's a very astute and a very correct observation. Interestingly enough, as a Leeds fan, uh, the first known chaplain in the United Kingdom was a man by the name of John Jackson at Leeds in 1962. So Leeds actually plays this very formative role in um, in sports chaplaincy. So yeah, it is not as public of a role. Um, and I think there goes to be a handful of things with that. One, um, I think just in general, religion is, particularly evangelical Christianity, is something that is uh, more in the forefront in American sport and American life. Um, so I think culturally there is that element of difference there. Um, you know, it is a very common thing if you watch an NFL game, they'll hone in or take photos or the camera will look in at players praying at the 50-yard line at the end of a game from both teams. You know, to my knowledge, I've never seen that in the Premier League. I'm a big Premier League fan. I've never seen something of that nature within it. Um, oftentimes that's led by a chaplain and things of that nature. Um, so I think there's – because of that cultural difference, people are more interested in what these chaplains do and how they function and things like that. Um, but the two thirds of uh, teams who are in the FA uh, have a, um, or sorry, not in the FA, excuse me, who are uh, pro teams have a chaplain associated with them. So these chaplains do tend to work a little bit more in the background. They tend to focus more on pastoral care um, what we found in our research was in the number one consistent role that an NFL chaplain plays is to provide a worship service the night before a game. Um, you know, this is not the case in the United Kingdom. That this is something, uh, UK chaplains are far more there to be a pastoral presence uh, and to serve those needs of the, of the club. Where a club chaplain may be brought to the forefront would be uh, during a time of remembrance. So oftentimes a club's chaplain will be present for the laying of a wreath for Remembrance Day. Uh, but also many UK um, football clubs have got memorial gardens where people can spread ashes um, of loved ones and things of that. And oftentimes the chaplain is asked to help officiate that or to be a coordinating point, um, almost an official club liaison, if you will, between the club and this family. So that's where you might see a club chaplain there. Um, but no, they're very much present. Uh, to my knowledge, only two or three clubs in the Premier League right now don't have sports chaplains associated with them. Uh, now, how much those chaplains do and their role varies uh, by team. But that's also very common uh, in regards to what uh, in the U.S. as well. Just because they, uh, all the NFL teams have a, a chaplain, but just because they have a chaplain doesn't mean this person is there every day or is meeting with athletes all the time and things such as that. Um, but no, they're very much in the background and working for that. Uh, there's a group called Sports Chaplaincy UK, which uh, really oversees all chaplaincy in the United Kingdom. And as of now, they have over 500 chaplains affiliated with 
um, with them, doing work with them and whatnot. So it's a very, it's a very much a ministry that is underground in that way, not doesn't get a lot of public attention. But that doesn't mean it has a far reaching, uh, it isn't far reaching in the UK. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to think about just because a team has a chaplain doesn't necessarily mean that there's a set guidebook or a set rulebook for what a chaplain does. So in terms of your research, you interviewed four chaplains. I suppose what I'm interested in is how long have they been at their respective clubs and where did they see their fit? Because I'm just thinking the Premier League in the last like, 20 to 30 years has just seen such a monumental change in terms of the players who come over are now from a variety of different religions. There's a lot more money in the game. There are now you know, kind of assistants who would do pastoral care in a sense. So I'm just wondering how long have they been there and have they been present for some of those kind of seismic shifts in the demographics of the Premier League? Yeah. So, um, you know, cha- sports chaplaincy has been present in British football since before the, you know, since the, before the Premier League was around. So chaplains have been present throughout that time. What's interesting is, um, and this speaks to other leagues as, or other di- teams and other divisions as well, is um, kind of how that chaplain is brought in and where they're seen in that microcosm or in the macrocosm of a team. Um, you mentioned the bigness of some of those teams. Um, some chaplains who serve bigger teams can at times struggle to find that place. Um, they're far more of a marginal figure because pastoral care might be seen as something someone else does. However, at a smaller club, that might be something that they are asked to do more of because they don't have the budget to bring in as many people um, and things of that nature. Um, sports chaplaincy is an inherently voluntary field. Uh, there is no UK-based chaplain I know of who receives financial support from their club or is a paid member employee of their club. Um, and even in the U.S., it's a very rare thing. And I don't know of any uh, chaplain whose only uh, position is a sports chaplain is fully paid in that way by a club. They're often a life coach associated with that or things of that nature tied in there. Um, so the, the, the chaplains at larger clubs um, tend to struggle with those things more. However, uh, the chaplains at smaller clubs um, do tend to have a little bit more access and entry point there because it is a smaller organization in that way too. Um, some of the chaplains I worked with um, had been around for a long time and they tended to have a lot of very good access and entry points. Um, the one chaplain I worked with who was a little bit newer, I don't think that uh, the fact that he was new necessarily hindered his access and what the club was asking of him. I don't think the club would have asked much more of an older chaplain who had been there for a longer time either. Um, it seemed to be more, there wasn't as much room for chaplaincy as in as opposed to this is a new person who we're not a fan of. Um, I did interview some chaplains who had been with the clubs when they had been in different leagues and had, uh, had been in the championship as well. And that tended to strengthen some of those ties also. Um, in that regard. Um, but it was also interesting because what we found in the study, and this affirmed previous research in these places, really the, the, manage, the first team manager is the one who really sets the tone for how much the chaplain is welcomed in. Um, you know, there was a chaplain who I had been working with who had been serving for at least a decade, if not a decade and a half, who a new manager came in and really shut him down. This was a guy who had been present in a variety of different ways uh, for the team. And he, <clears throat> excuse me, 
the manager saw what he was doing and did not like it and really shut down his access. And that really had a ripple effect throughout the entire club. Uh, because if the first team manager doesn't like what this guy is doing, you know, you put yourself in that position of an employee. Well, the first team manager doesn't like this. If he sees me associating with the sports chaplain, is he going to have an issue with what I'm doing? And could that affect my position here if this is how he's treating this person? So what we found in the research is the first team manager really had a ripple effect on how and what the chaplain did. You know, conversely, there was a first team manager who was very close with the chaplain. And that chaplain had amazing access and entry point. He was really welcome in the club. He had match day access that was really unheard of in UK sport. And he had an ability then to move within the club that was that was really kind, so or not kind, that's the wrong word there, but really unseen and unheard of. It was very kind of the manager to do that for him. He saw him as a vital role there. So that was a very unique point in that. So that's a really, it, that really depends. But that also happens in the U.S. too. Um, some coaches are not interested in chaplains being around much. Um, well, I know of a chaplain who was not in my study, but he'd been at his team for over 25 years. He was allowed on the sidelines during games even. And a new coach came in and said, only essential personnel are going to be on the sideline. And his sideline pass was revoked. So that's sending a message that the chaplain is not essential to the work and things like that. Mm. So it's interesting how those things kind of go in that way. And actually, I'm happy you brought in then the kind of U.S. element of this because as someone relatively, not relatively, as someone very ignorant to this, my understanding would be that a chaplain in the U.K. is more almost a conduit to the fans at at this day and age um, of the flocks. I mean, like Sunderland till I die. I remember a lot of people being confused because there's a pastor linking in Sunderland into his mass in the church. Mm-hmm. And I remember people saying, do people still do that? And I was like, well, I think that's maybe, you know, what the role has evolved into because a lot of the bigger clubs seem to have a lot more kind of secular support staff. Whereas I'm just wondering in the U S it seems to be like very enmeshed with the players and kind of devotional element of a lot of American athletes, which isn't as publicized in the UK anymore. Like you don't get as many kind of outright religious players talking about their beliefs. Um, at least in the, uh, among Christian players. Yeah, and I, I will say, I think that, you know, and I can't, I don't, I can't speak to the chaplain in Sunderland until I die. Um, and it, to me, it seemed to that, I, and I, I haven't watched the second season yet fully, um, although as someone who does support Charlton on the side, it was rat, <laughs> I'm looking forward to finishing the end of the season. Not my primary <laughs> club, but uh, a big fan nonetheless. So I'm looking forward to the end of the season, of the second season. But I wonder, too, with that is, how much is that is his ministry and his parish being so close to the stadium and offering that versus really being attuned in with the club's chaplaincy? Because the chaplains I worked with in the UK were very much there still for players and staff and were more in the organization than outside of it. Didn't mean they weren't present for fans or couldn't be seen on a match day. Many of them even if they didn't wear a clerical collar during the week, would often wear one on match day as almost a way of a a distinction of who they were. And so they'd be there for fans, but they were still more there for the organization. For the United States, um, it would be very strange for a a chaplain to be working with the fans of the organization other than maybe um, being welcomed into a local church service or speaking at a a men's breakfast or something like that where if you're a fan and you happen to know about the team chaplain speaking somewhere, you may go to it. Hmm. Uh, no, they are um, very much there for the players, uh, um, coaches, and staff. 
um, and primarily for the athletes in the United States. So as I said, the primary role or the expectation that the club is going to ask for, the NFL team is going to ask for, is that this chaplain coordinates a worship service the night before a game. Oftentimes, we'll often offer a Bible study at some point during the week. Um, and if you think about this, this actually goes back to the historical roots of sports chaplain in the United States. The NFL is a Sunday game. And so on Sundays, the NFL athletes' time pregame is not their own. So if someone would like to attend a worship service on Sunday, uh, they have a professional conflict with their desire to have this devotional practice. So that's actually in the 1950s where sports chaplaincy comes from. NFL athletes were trying to find a way to go to church, but couldn't because they had games. Um, and so in come sports chaplains. Um, very few teams now do it on Sunday mornings, a uh, service on Sunday mornings. They really want to keep that space as kind of a headspace for the game. Mm. Um, also, if you think about it, you know, you and I are in the central time zone. Games kick off at noon here. You are probably having breakfast at 8, 9 a.m., you know, getting your body ready and things like that, and then getting to the field earlier. So trying to fit in a, a service at that time of day, you're just having to really push that early in the day, and that might be affecting sleep and so on and so forth. So those things modify that. So Saturday night is the typical time for those services. Um, and so every chaplain I spoke with, that's the base level. Um, the pastoral care is kind of an add-on and may or may not be there. But those people are looking to coordinate that service. Some NFL chaplains travel with the team on the team's private plane and uh, work with the team throughout the year. Mm -hmm. So they will do all of the regular season and playoff cha uh, chapel services. Other chaplains will do all the home events and they travel on their own to games if it's convenient for them or if they don't have their own church and things like that. But otherwise, they have to coordinate those chapel services uh, for the NFL team on the road um, and oftentimes uh, chaplains will work with one another to say hey my team is coming to your uh, to your city do you have a local pastor or a local person who you'd recommend who's worked with them um, or worked with NFL teams in the past and they'll kind of coordinate together to try and help that at least as a cha when a chaplain's new oftentimes uh, the same chaplain will be the visiting team's chaplain not necessarily for every visiting team, but every time this team goes to this city, the same person's there, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Um, and so they're very much there for the team in that way. Um, from the NFL team's perspective, this meets that need of a pe person wanting to attend worship, but it's kind of on our schedule. Uh, so it doesn't affect game day uh, stuff. This kind of works the same for Bible study. NFL, chap, uh, NFL teams are extremely intense during the, count, uh, during the season. Um, in fact, many NFL coaches are known for actually sleeping in their office most, week, most days in season because uh, they're trying to do so much work. So once again, we have people who want to attend a Bible study, but you know, if we have meetings or other things scheduled, we don't want them being compromised in that way. So if we bring in someone who can do a Bible study on our schedule, both parties' needs are, met, are, you know, then needs are then met then. And so that's where that kind of meeting the coaches and athletes comes in in that way. Um, but then from what, from what a chaplain can do there is very dependent on the team, their own ministry, and what the team's looking for. So there it is very much based on providing that utilitarian need in that way and then seeking to 
minister from there, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And the idea of the network is something I'm interested in. So obviously this is pretty much predominantly a voluntary position within clubs on both sides of the Atlantic. I'm wondering what's the, like, is there a typical pathway for chaplains? So in the UK, are public schools kind of a launching pad for professional teams? Because I'm thinking in Ireland, sports chaplaincy is predominantly among like fee-paying rugby schools. You know, religious order schools would be mm-hmm. where you'd still see like a strong sports chaplaincy element. Someone, is there like a traditional pathway that people take? Or is this just you're close to the club, you know someone, chaplaincy steps down, they invite you in? Like, how does it work? Yeah, it's really dependent. You know, there is no like feeder system to the first team, if you will, of sports chaplaincy. There's no U23 or second side that you're working through in that way. Um, It's very much dependent on location. So in the United Kingdom, uh, the majority of sports chaplaincy goes through Sports Chaplaincy UK. and they do a very good job of training their chaplains and then helping them uh, provide spaces for them to, um, to either, if someone comes to, the, comes to the organization and says, I would like to be a chaplain, helping them find a place to be a chaplain. Or they work with a lot of organizations, sports organizations like the FA, like the Premier League, and different governing bodies. If a club or a governing body says, we're looking for a chaplain here, helping them find someone locally or helping them work with the current chaplain or chaplain's going to move of facilitating an interview process. Um, so off, so you can have that a voluntarily someone coming to the organization saying, I'm interested in doing this. And then sports chaplaincy UK might help them, will help them find a position. Um, in that regard, um, you would be looking at, they do an induction day and some training around that. They do safeguarding training. Um, there's references that are required as well, and the person has to sign a code of practice, which is also signed by the um, host organization, that club as well. Um, so that's kind of the process in the UK. Um, so you might be invited into it, you also, but you also could be invited into it. Um, I know of a number of chaplains, both in the study and outside the study, who were friends with a chaplain who said, I'd love for you to come see what we're doing. I think you'd be very good at this. You have a passion for sports or you work with sports people in another way, you might be good at this. Um, so those are two of the tracks in that regard. Um, in the U.S., it's a little bit different. Um, there are now um, a handful of universities and institutions who are offering sports ministry or sports chaplaincy tracks. And that's actually something that's being offered now in the, uh, in the U.K. as well um, at Ridley Hall. And the Church of England is actually paying a lot of attention to sports chaplaincy and sports ministry and focusing in on that. Um, in the U.S., some chaplains are affiliated with a group called Athletes in Action, which is a parachurch organization that works with uh, elite-level athletes, be it at the co- collegiate or at the professional level. Um, so you might be, go on staff there. Uh, and to be on staff at Athletes in Action, you are doing a number of different trainings, but you're also raising your own salary. These people uh, often consider themselves in a missionary role. Uh, a domestic missionary role, and they're raising their own salaries. Um, so there is no formal affiliation between the NFL and Athletes in Action or other groups, unlike Sports Chap- Chaplaincy UK that has a formal affiliation with these groups. So an NFL team may uh, say that they need, they've re- either removed or if they've removed their chaplain, they may reach out 
to other teams and ask what they're doing, or they may seek out other, uh, ask people in the organization if they know people, things of that nature. If a chaplain's moving on, or it might just be time for a shift, they may uh, ask the the current chaplain for suggestions, um, or they may uh, look out for a group like Athletes in Action and ask, "How could could you help us find someone in that way?" Um, but uh, no, I would also say that. There are quite a few people who would like the notoriety of being an NFL chaplain. Um, and so it does tend to be a fairly guarded role. Um, and there is no interview process. There is no like, you're not going on to work a day or LinkedIn and looking for a, a chaplain at the Indianapolis Colts or something like that. And that's just a random team that I throw out there. Um, and so uh, it does tend to be guarded in that way. Um, for example, I know of at least one or two people on Twitter who say they're the chaplain to a certain sport, uh, to a certain NFL team, and I know that they only talked to that team once and were not invited back. And but that holds quite a weight to it. Yeah. And so chaplains tend to be guarded in the NFL around their ministry, not as a protective element, but because they recognize that this is a notor this is position carries some notoriety, and to continue in that ministry. Uh, you know, requires you to be delicate and to not abuse that power. And that's something that chaplains are very well aware of. Not, and like I say, not in a way of saying, you know, it's not like Gollum, it's the precious and I must guard it, but they recognize the weight of what they're doing. And they also recognize that it carries weight in this type of culture. And so they have to honor that. And so in terms of studying this for doctoral research, like as you said at the beginning, this isn't, like a very well-trodden area just yet in terms of history or study. So what was the most difficult element then in terms of actually doing doctoral work? Was it finding the participants? Was it getting them to talk? Was it trying to situate it within a broader sporting context? Was there any road bumps? Oh, there's tons of road bumps. There's plenty <laughs> of road bumps, that's for sure. Um, and, you know, some of those road bumps come from the fact of it being a cross-cultural study as well. Um, and I'm a part-time student. So my, my position during the academic year is six days a week. I teach five days a week and I lead worship services on Sunday. And I'm, uh, you know, my wife and I have two foster children. Um, so some of the, yeah, so glutton for punishment to say the least. Uh, I was just trying, trying to figure out where free time would possibly enter that scenario. I'd love, after we're done, you'll have to explain what this concept of free time is to me. I've heard of it. I'm very intrigued by it. Um, no, so no, there was a ton of different roadblocks in those ways. And so some of them were very much the basis of simply trying to be a part-time doctoral student um, and those challenges. Um, but in regards to the study, uh, I would say that, you know, for me, my background, I attended Princeton Theological Seminary, uh, which is in Princeton, New Jersey, and not, but is not a part of Princeton University. We tend to sound rather posh, but we're not as posh. Um, in that regard, um, but it's more of a liberal institution. I am a part of a more liberal denomination, and I'm not a member of an evangelical parachurch organization. So in the NFL, seeking some of those connections was challenging, um, and I really had to show that I was not here to write an expose and a tell-all piece and things like that. So one of the first things I told chaplains when I asked if I could get them on the phone to, to talk about being a research participant was, to say, you know, I'm really, if you want to tell me about what athletes are doing or you want to provide examples, that's great. But I'm not interested in what athletes are doing. I'm not interested mm -hmm. if the star quarterback or the star defensive end 
is coming to worship services and how that's affecting your play. Um, I'm never going to ask for access to athletes or other people at your institution because um, that's not my focus. So there was definitely some trust to gain in that way. Um, I also was very fortunate to have some colleagues and mentors who do have connections um, who have done this type of work who could vouch that I was not there, um, that it was really in an academic sense and this was good work in that way. Uh, in the United Kingdom, I have a few more ch uh, ties with Sports Chaplains to UK and those pr uh, proved very beneficial uh, in terms of seeking out research participants and things of that nature. Um, chaplains in the UK have also tended to be a little bit more in tune with the research um, process. There's a master's in sports chaplaincy that's available and a number of uh, chaplains uh, in the Premier League Championship and other places have done that degree. So uh, those chaplains have talked to others within the organization about what they've done. And so academic research is something that's a little bit more known, if you will. Um, and so those were really great there. Uh, those were helpful. But once I finally got those participants, um, I think the challenges were just the challenges you face in any when you're learning a research, uh, how to you know effectively use research methods and things of that nature. Um, for example, I had one chaplain who, if I asked for five words, I was lucky to get three. So at the beginning of my research, I was terrified that I wasn't going to get good data from this guy. Is this going to be a complete waste of a participant? And am I not a waste, but is this not going to yield the fruit I was hoping? Am I going to have to find another participant? But I just had to learn how to manage that in those ways. Um, and so that was a challenge in that. Um, and then, um, yeah, I would have loved to have done some more field observations. I live in rural South Central Pennsylvania. So um, every, you know, the closest national uh, NFL team is over a two and a half hour drive from us. So getting, you know, and it's a national league and all my subjects in the UK were in the UK. So getting to engage with these chaplains uh, outside of digital means was really difficult. Um, so I did get the opportunity to do a little bit of field observation, but not as much as I would have liked to. Um, in regards to previous literature, um, there is enough to help ground it. But at times we did have to look to wider trends of sports cha uh, to chaplaincy. Mm -hmm. and see how chaplains function and things like that. So some of the work does look at, um, okay, this is a, a role traditionally assigned with, you know, education, military, prison, and healthcare chaplains all talk about this. And those are kind of the big banner subjects when it comes to chaplaincy. So how do we look at general literature and chaplaincy and how does that stand up and stack up to what we're doing with sports chaplaincy? Um, but I think, you know, for me, I'm really excited by something that the, we're still trying to work out some of the literature trends. I think that's a really exciting place to be. Um, I think it's a rare privilege in academia these days. And so um, it's one of those things where we said, okay, we have a handful of studies that were done on US-based chaplains in college athletics. We can use those. We have some in the UK. And then we have a, lot, a decent amount of theoretical writing. So how can we utilize that to our advantage and really expand on the literature there? Um, we also used other things, um, for example, uh, Victor Turner's elements on liminality and marginality, the anthropologist Victor Turner, were hugely helpful in talking about the marginality of sports chaplains, uh, which was not something we had planned to focus on, uh, but through the data coding and uh, reading process, we just really saw a lot of chaplains who were feeling marginal. So how can we put some some language with that and think and how can we think about that academically and that so we had to 
to go elsewhere too, but it was hugely helpful in that way. Um, and some really fun stuff there. So yeah, definite challenges in that way. Um, but I don't think they're unique in those ways. So that was fortunate too. And somehow inconceivably you've managed to find time to actually etch out uh, a dissertation. So I'm wondering as a final question, what's next for you now? So you have your Viva coming up soon and then is there any, anything else or that we can direct people listening to the podcast towards so they can see some of your work or see what you're doing? Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm on social media. You can follow me there. Please feel free to, if you Google Will Whitmore Mercersburg Academy, my information will come up or I'm on LinkedIn. So please feel free to reach out if you have more questions. Um, I recently published in uh, Practical Theology on a theological look at sports chaplaincy, which was one of the first of its kind. So that was good. Um, and I don't, we don't have any other research articles uh, in the pipeline right now. Uh, my hope after the dissertation is to kind of take a reset, but I'm hoping to look into um, kind of one of three different areas. Uh, not much has been written on secondary school chaplaincy uh, mm -hmm. from an academic lens. So that would be a little bit different from sport and religion, but it is something that is definitely something I have some experience in and I'm interested in diving into further. Um, there's a huge range of stuff still to be done with sports chaplaincy. Um, you know, this is only two leagues and there are still tons of other places that sports chaplains work. Um, a growing movement in the UK is uh, sports chaplains affiliated with gymnasiums and fitness centers. It'd be really fascinating to look at how they approach their work and things of that nature. So there's other things like that. I'm also very interested in how sports chaplains work at uh, motor racing tracks where there's a high, there's a risk of mortality and how does this potential, how does sports chaplaincy work or how do sports chaplains approach their work? That's a better way of saying that when there is the risk of death. Um, you know, do people die uh, from football and soccer? Maybe degenerative diseases later on, but I can't really think of many times in recent history where someone has died while playing um, football uh, in either code. So what does it look like when there's this real risk of mortality there? Um, but another interesting element that I've been looking into that I'm hoping to get to is uh, I'd really like to look at how the Amish understand sport and play. So where I live in Pennsylvania, I'm two hours from Lancaster County, which is kind of the, the hub of Amishism, mm -hmm. if you will, and the Amish. Um, Amishism isn't a thing. I don't know why I said that. But, um, uh, the <laughs> sounds, Amish. Sounds and, very good. Uh, it does. It, ism, just throw it on the end of it. But it's really the, the one of the hubs of that, one of the three major areas. And our, the closest Amish community to us is about – 25 miles north of us and I bike up there all the time um, but they have a very interesting relationship with sport and play um, uh, a few decades ago actually the Lancaster church Lancaster Amish churches got together and outlawed essentially the playing of softball because it was becoming too competitive mm -hmm. and becoming too individualistic which are very antithetical to the Amish way of life and spirituality but yet they still want to play games and sports and things like that. So um, I've started some preliminary conversations with a few friends and actually a few Amish about how they look and understand sport. And so I'm very interested in that. Um, I'm fascinated by how conservative religious groups who have a very rigid structure of how they understand life and have a very regulated communal system interact with sport and play. Um, I think those are very interesting lines because they tend to push against that communal ethos and some of that regimentedness. So we'll see. For now, I'm just focusing on those things and uh, 
seeing, you know, what this pandemic lifestyle throws <laughs> at us next. Um, it's, it sure is going to be entertaining. I'll tell you that. And uh, unexpected. But um, yeah, those are where I'm looking at for those things. But I love chatting with people about these things. Um, I recently did a webinar with the Chaplaincy Innovation Lab where I talked a lot more about the nuts and bolts of how sports chaplaincy works and a little bit more about my data findings. So people can find that online. Uh, but one of the things I did there was I grabbed people's email from Q&A and I corresponded with them that way. Uh, so if people are listening to this and they have more questions or they want to chat more about it, I love talking to people about this stuff. So please don't hesitate to reach out. Right, awesome. Yeah. So I'll make sure for anyone listening in the bio for this episode, we'll have Twitter, LinkedIn links, links to articles, webinars and everything. So I know you have a faculty meeting coming up because you, you, I thought I was busy, but you really are <laughs> quite busy. So I will never complain about that again. So I'll end by saying, Will, thank you so much for lending your time to this. And it was oh. an absolutely fascinating topic. Yeah, I hope to come back at some point. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a there's a fascinating history of how religion and sport combine in Britain and the US and hope we can chat about it again at some point. And yeah, thanks for having me today. Perfect, thanks so much. Mm-hmm.